Welcome. I'm trauma therapist and neuroscience consultant, Shauna Hill, and you're listening to the State Change Podcast. So although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thanked them for sharing and said you I didn't have much to go on at that point in my life, but I know that I knew that's something that My mom that is an otherworldly type figure. She had one foot in this reality and one foot somewhere else. You've been and waiting for this I'm senior year, all your like high school life, and suddenly now you're like, being I don't even know Being in public service and being a politician, I have less privacy than I when would expect. When my mom started day. working from home, I saw her a lot more. She was in meetings all day, so it was like she wasn't there, but But she when actually- we bring everyone to the table, it's beautiful, and it builds the social cohesion that is rapidly eroding in so many parts of the world. We talk with folks who faced some of life's most harrowing left turns and found their way through the fires of incredible trauma, pain, and adversity to a better state of things. Thanks for joining us. Shauna, tell me about the wobble. Tell me what what a wobble is, and tell me about your wobble. So I've been using this term wobble because it's so effective, whether you're talking to children, families, training adults, talking to healthcare providers, everyone sort of intuitively can connect to this idea of that, you know, sometimes we are upright, right? And sometimes something comes along and it sort of knocks us over. And Framing a crisis, uh, a negative experience, a challenge, a health challenge, any of those things as a crisis produces a certain way of relating to it, right? If I say, oh, my God, your life is burning to the ground, right, then then this produces a mindset, a set of body responses, et cetera. And so I, this is a thing that I've been using for years as a clinician is this concept that you know, we are all like those little weeble wobble toys. And and I didn't invent this idea. This is something I learned from a Buddhist monk when I was like 19 years old at a meditation workshop. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I and I asked, I was a young college student trying to understand this mindfulness thing that I, I was learning about. And this, the monk said, you know, I asked, what do you do when you're trying to meditate and your mind wanders, which is, I'm sure, the question everyone asks. And he said, meditation is like a weeble wobble. And I was thinking, did this monk just say weeble wobble? And he did. And he said, you know, you fall over, come back to center. Fall over, come back to center. And I never forgot that. I didn't totally understand what to do with that. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't see all the application of it at the time. I just knew it made a lot of sense. And it was kind of a a hopeful, helpful way of thinking about instead of I am bad at meditation, that there's a practice to the coming back to center that he was able to get me to understand with that term and that metaphor. So as a clinician for many years, when a kid or a teen would be in my office and like, oh my God, I got kicked out of the, you know, I got kicked out of school or I'm suspended from the team or I did the thing. And I would say, well, this is a wobble, right? And I even had a weeble wobble in my therapy office. I still do. I actually have a weeble wobble from 1970s that my mom found. It was like one of my old weeble wobbles that I still use as a teaching tool. So the wobble 
the way I used to teach and train with this tool is I would hold up the weeble wobble and I would say, look, some wobbles are like a couple of hours of a day that are bad, right? And you're just in a funky mood. You wobble and guess what? No big deal. Come back to center. Some wobbles are, you know, are catastrophic. And I would throw the weeble wobble across the, tr the room or the auditorium. And I would say, I don't even know where that weeble wobble is, right? That was a big one. That was a big wobble. But I do know it's upright. Wherever I find it, it will be upright, right? So sometimes life wobbles us in these ways that are much bigger. But the task is the same, which is understanding it as, as a state that is playing out and something that comes back to self, to health, to, to a place that's okay. And one of the things about a wobble, right, is that we all can relate to it. And that implicit in the idea of something being a wobble is I have, I've fallen or I am struggling, but of course I'm coming back to center, right? Of course I'm coming back to center. I am not collapsed. I am not incapacitated in some way where I cannot come back to center. I think it, it puts the solution in a naming of the problem that everyone can, can accept. So I had not ever had to think about that really for myself. I think I was actually harder on myself. I think I thought of things in terms of success or failure, doing a good job or doing a bad job, and I handled something well or I didn't. But it was certainly a concept that I could at least externalize to others. By the end of 2020, I had been, you know, working in repro justice in this very critically stressful and complicated and overwhelming uncertain time. My dad had had a catastrophic fall and almost died. And I'd been working with kids home, like climbing all over the house, like that whole thing. And I started to, you know, struggle and not feel well and think it was stress um, and eventually end up in a pain flare, which was pretty predictable in that circumstance. Fucking ice cream truck, like parked in front of our house after I told my kids no. Can I have some money? We haven't had dinner yet. We're not having ice cream. We haven't had dinner yet. I was just going to take you guys to Al's french fries. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If there's a complaint, you can go make toast. This is what they're doing when they do things like this. They're parking here on purpose to make us have a fight as a family. What? The ice cream truck. They should not be coming here. When and I, I, it was such a bad pain flare. I hadn't had that in a while that... I decided to trial a new medication that, you know, my doctor had told me if we ever struggle with this again, we could try, you know, this medication that's a pretty big deal, a lot of side effects, not something I really wanted to try, but I was so desperate and so isolated and so <laughs> worried that in these circumstances I was going to suffer. It's a whole thing. It becomes the bigger story, right? Like the, 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 the first couple of years, cancer is the story. After that, pain is the story and, and a little bit, you know, executive dysfunction and, you know, sensory issues and brain injury issues, but mostly it's a pain story. People don't realize always, but it becomes in a way life or death because you can't oh my God. live your whole life in pain. It, it becomes the whole thing. There's nothing to make your life smaller or your world feel more ominous then when your body is in pain that it cannot get a break from. I mean, first of all, it's exhausting. It shuts you down from what you want to be doing, whatever it is you want to be doing. You can't do that. And I felt like I had clawed my way out of this fire swamp of an experience. And like my kids were looking okay. They were good. We were going to be, you know, it was like we were okay. I had done it, you know, and COVID came in and it, it kicked my ass, which I knew it would. I'm, you know, I'm the one who was training people on this. Like I knew it would. And with that came unbearable pain again. And I said yes to that med, but it ended up being something that really cost me because within a few months, I was having all manner of neurologic symptoms. 
much relief from the pain. I mean, pain-wise, I was doing great. I thought I was better, but I was started having speech problems, balance problems, started seeing strange things in my vision. Um, eventually, I started having seizures. Um, my memory was getting terrible again, even though I had really rehabilitated that. My executive function was failing, and I was starting to feel paranoid at times, a variety of things. So of course, I go to my healthcare team. I get worked up. Everyone looks for tumors. There's no tumors. My blood work looks great. And everyone's sort of like, well, it's been a stressful year. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, you're having a hard time. And I remember thinking, well, you know, I'm a neuroscience consultant now, and I can see that this is neurologic. Like inside my own mind, I could see from a very functional standpoint, like I could see left brain, right brain integration um, interruptions that hadn't been there two weeks ago and were there now, right? And there are certain things that can be stress-related. Like certainly I could have been depressed or developing even a psychosis from like a long depression, but that wouldn't be causing balance issues, right? Like, and I knew that. And I knew more about that than a lot of my doctors because of what I had been doing, you know, and also you're the only one who point. sees. You're the only one who sees your internal experience. Right. I'm right? the one who sees the difference. Right. I was the one who saw the saw my speech change, pressured speech, slurred speech. Started doing really dangerous things, like I would wander around in my house and leave the burner on, and then the kids would be like, "Mom, the burner's on," and I would be like, "Oh my god!" Right. And, you know, I had to call in people to come and help and I had to go to a bunch of doctor's appointments and people thought I might be having like a, a breakdown. And I kept saying, okay, I, maybe, like maybe, C certainly I deserve one basically, right? Maybe, but I don't think so. I think this is those meds. And so I discontinued myself off the med. And when I did that, I caused a crisis, a worse worsening of the crisis. That new medication had created an adverse medication interaction with other medications I had been on stable for a long time. And long story short, within a few weeks, I am barely able to communicate, laying in dark rooms with sunglasses and noise protection. I cannot drive. I cannot work. I cannot do anything. My friends and family are rallying a plan, and I end up hospitalized back at the same hospital I'd had that surgery at. And when, you know, there's no tumors, there's no cancer activity, and I had a couple seizures, and, and I also had a car accident with my kids in the car. I was driving them to camp. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. I knew that it was probably the meds, but definitely neurologic. And what I was being told by people who are seen by everyone else as the experts in this stuff is that you must, ju you must just be depressed or, or you must just be having a meltdown, right? And I'm thinking, like, buddy... I know my stress tolerance, right? So long story short, I end up hospitalized with no plan and no answer. And all these healthcare providers, no one knows what to do. And I basically, in chicken scratch writing, because I can barely speak, kind of tell everybody I need to get to a specialty brain clinic or provider somewhere else. And I f sort of get people helping me to identify this clinic out in Los Angeles, you know, this intensive day clinic that had a neurofeedback lab, had practitioners really trained in brain health. They, they did all kinds of stuff, addiction, chronic pain, you know, trauma recovery, everything. And I knew I needed someone who had a different training set. So I had to be escorted across the country. Someone had to fly with me because I was essentially not able to be attended. I would wander off. And I don't know that I've said that publicly before, but I was very incapacitated. I got out there. I landed in that program. As soon as I saw the doctor, he's like, oh, my gosh, here's what happened. And, and he had worked in the prison system with people with a lot of traumatic brain injury. And he said, you have such sensitive neurology. You're having a serotonin syndrome. 
and a stimulant psychosis that was caused by that other medication and is gone so off the rails that your whole central nervous system is broken down, right? And very quickly deceived me. Very quickly, I gained 90% of my functional capacity back, like immediately. So, sorry, what has deceived you? Um, discontinued, oh. right? So I went off the one med and got off, I got off a bunch of meds, actually. And then I woke up and... Not only did, was I feeling, you know, physically I was fine and cognitively I was clear, but I was devastated. What I learned from that experience when I came back and had to rehabilitate a second brain injury and recovery and rebuild everything again and like come back and deal with my children being traumatized and all that again is that all that work I had done those first few years of the cancer thing and all like all the stuff I'd figured out was now a toolkit and I just put it in place and within three or four months I was working again and starting to think about starting a company <laughs> so it was a much faster rehabilitation it was a much faster return to health and I think you know, as, as 2020 was sort of progressing and you could see that the, the stressors on me specifically and working parents and, and to be totally blunt, single parents in the pandemic were being collapsed in a way that I think was really invisible to other people because single parents were not able to be on social media complaining about how hard on this was because we literally had no one to spell us, right? There was no give. And so... It doesn't feel so much like I wobbled. It feels like the world wobbled me. The world wobbled us, right? The world shook. And in that shaking, of course, I was going to get depleted and burnt out and, and struggle with fibro and, and my health was going to wobble, right? But again, implicit in that is this idea that when the world stops wobbling me, I now know how to come back to center. So when I s felt my health really becoming, you know, not just concerning, but a crisis. And I felt the control of my life slipping through my fingers, like, uh-oh, I might need to go to the hospital. Uh-oh, what happens with my children? Uh-oh, uh-oh, you know, I need work. It, it was like a flood coming and wiping my life and my tools and, and everything I had been building away. And when I stabilized and came out of that, it was hard to see it as a wobble at the time because what it felt like was an attack. And so I think in, in that case, there was a lot of um, work to do that was more spiritual and existential in that I had to come to see it as another wobble. I had to actually return to that concept myself. Okay, this was a big one. It wasn't just, it wasn't fair. Guess what? Life isn't just or fair. But it took me longer to get my own mindset where I needed it to be. And the reason is because that second health episode and the fact that it was a second wobble of that magnitude that had those consequences for me had me process things differently in a way that felt um, I had to go through some grief first, real grief, grief and loss, frankly, from all kinds of things, years of it. But what replaced the grief very quickly was anger. And I think until I was done with the anger, I couldn't see it as a wobble. And it was more like I couldn't even think about coming back to center quite yet 
because frankly, the anger was like a lava flow. It was just pouring through me. And there were a few months where I knew that my job was to be integrating anger and like keeping it out of my relationships and trying to get it out of my health and my immune system because I was also trying to bring all my tools to, to heal myself. But I couldn't come to see this as another, you know, moment where life gets tricky for a while, another spell of weather, bad weather, until I could get through that anger. And, you know, the anger, frankly, was about a thousand things. It was existential. It was political. It was social. I hated the healthcare system. I hated everybody I knew, you know, and it wasn't specific. It was everywhere, everywhere, everything all at once. And, um, and because I was a clinician, I knew that I had to labor that anger and I had to sort of account for it and try to keep it from being toxic, right, and move it. And after that, then I could access like, wow, well, that was a rough storm. Really wish that had not happened. <laughs> Boy, do I wish that had not happened. But I could come back to that place that had helped me before, which was, okay, now how to get back to center, right? What's, what's, the, what's the way we get up right here? And that's when it was like, oh, I actually know that. And not only do I know that, but I am, I am seasoned in this. And I am seasoned in this from cancer. I am seasoned in this from chronic pain. I am seasoned in this from the financial calamity that is cancer with little kids for a few years. And I'm seasoned in that from COVID, right? Like I, I was much more resilient in general about COVID because I understood this is a period of very bad weather for us, but that I can move through it with more resilience and move my kids through it. So I think it's a good example of how I got back to that mindset that moved me forward. But sometimes the wobble, you know, the wobble like puts you somewhere and you have to, you have to go on a side quest, right? And I, and I had kind of a side quest in that one that involved a lot of anger. And, and what we know about anger is that it's self-protective. And when it shows up, it means you are on your own team, right? So in a way, I'm thrilled that I spent three months hating everybody. <laughs> you know, I, I was very radicalized about health equity at this point. I was radicalized about economic inequality. I was highly radicalized about, you know, family uh, economics and the fact that, you know, childcare, healthcare, managing, trying to raise children in the world was was inconsistent with health. And I was mad at my parents one second and I was mad at the field of social work. <laughs> you know, I pick a thing. And, and really none of the details really matter, right? Because it wasn't about any one thing. It was about this deep part of myself, this fierce part of myself that I had not really been friends with until I had cancer. I didn't know myself well. And, and then she had come out, right? And she'd had an opinion and she had saved me, right? And she was, I was so like loving that feeling of self. And then when your health collapses, COVID happens and all that, that happens, it's like it stole myself back from me and I had just gotten myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why my system was like, okay, roll the anger, time to cue the anger, right? Like, let's do this part of it. It, it would have come at some point, right? Or, or it would have shown up in other ways. And, in, and it just flew out of me like a like an exploding volcano and, and not, you know, not in like toxic ways, but I had to physically be exercising constantly. I told everyone close to me in my life, I am existentially angry and not at you, but I am needing to like be angry for a while. Right. And I just, I used therapy for this. I used a lot of practices to manage it, but understanding that anger is a neurobiologic cue 
that shows you your own will to live, that shows you that you are pissed off, that shows you that you are on your own team and fighting for yourself allowed me to not be afraid of it, right? I wasn't ever afraid of it, but I think most people might be. They're like, what's happening to me? Um, whereas I was like, nope, I guess this is the trip I'm on. You know, I'm just going to be like really mad about 27 things for a while. And then it shifted. And that's how I knew I had come back to center. Like the wobble is over when I can access a range of feelings and when I can calm and when I can go back to my, my life. And that's how I knew. I'm not sure that such a strong instance of anger would have happened had you not just gone through what you did. Because for me, with my big wobble in my chronic pain journey, was the same. I had healed the first time, mm -hmm. thought I was through it, and then when it came back with the same force, that's when the big emotion comes because you know what it means. You didn't I know, hadn't thought you, of that, you but you're exactly you right. Didn't, you didn't know what it meant before. Now you know what it means. You know you can't go back there. And so you have a very, very strong secondary emotional reaction, which for you is anger. Uh, for me was depression. Right. I think actually the first thing was depression, and but it just didn't last particularly long. You know, it was it, I sort of did that workout in California. You know, I'm out there in Los Angeles, like it's such a strange thing. My life has literally burnt to the ground and I am so devastated by it that I'm not with my children, that I am not starting my new company or doing whatever I'm trying to do. I, I just could not believe these set of circumstances. And there was a moment, I will say, this is hard to admit because it's not an attractive thing and I didn't stay there long, but there was a, a few weeks where I felt like almost like a child, like this is not fair. That was maybe the entry point to the anger. I think the anger, you know, I, I I had anger at my ex-spouse at that time, right? I think I had had an anger collection building for a very long time. But my mindset, you know, focus that, you know, I was really, really tending so carefully for so many years, I also realized was a little bit designed to help me skip that part because anger is not something that I see as super consistent with my values or who I am. And it was a little bit like I didn't go hunting for anger. And maybe anger wouldn't have come out if I hadn't, you know, had that, that those life events and that second health crisis, but it did come out. And what came out wasn't just anger about the last two years or about that health crisis. It, it, it was anger at everything. I was angry about abortion. I was angry about the Supreme Court. I was angry about climate. I was angry about 19 unrelated parts of my childhood. And I realized I was a person who'd been moving through the world my whole life collecting information that I thought was problematic, but not experiencing anger, right? I was not an angry person and I certainly didn't engage others or communicate anger. I wasn't very assertive. So in a way that anger had, had to happen and it also contributed something that I think of as part of my long-term, you know, resilience stuff, which is that after the anger dies down, you can't unsee or unknow some of the things the anger called your attention to. And so it gave me better information. You know, if I am this angry about the healthcare system and its inequities and its entrenched problems and how hard healthcare workers are working in, in a sort of impossible thing and how everyone's broke and no one can get what they need and, right, like the system feels like such a thing, then maybe I can't work in it anymore. And before it was like, well, I like working for myself, so maybe, you know, maybe I'll, I'll go start a thing again. But a part of me still felt like I belonged 
to serving other people, that when you're a licensed healthcare provider, you often feel as though if you stop providing care, you are removing care from a system that already does not have enough capacity. And and the system will cultivate this mindset in us. Like It makes you feel like you are a problem if you take time off and you are not moving patient put through and patient care. So I realized I was so angry about health inequity and health care that it suddenly gave me permission to decide that I didn't want to work in that system anymore. And I wanted to try to take what I had learned there to, first of all, help healthcare, like to train healthcare workers and to, to help healthcare, to innovate some new models and methods, but that I wanted to do that outside of the system and not go into it every day. And if I hadn't been, you know, mad about a thousand things for a minute, I'm not sure I would have put my mind there. So it is a gift. One overarching, really, really consistently painful, frustrating, alienating, and just difficult element of my life sort of careening into health issues and all this other stuff over years of time is how it upended my social relationships and my ability to be in my friendships, in my romantic relationships in my community, the way that I, I always had been in a way that my identity was really rooted in and that those relationships had, had been built in. So, you know, the first year or so, what that looked like was I couldn't call anyone back. I couldn't send anyone a thank you card. I didn't know anyone's birthday. I mean, it was like I was disappeared and everyone knew that. I, I'm not worried that people were concerned about that, but it was a loss for me. I liked being a good friend who remembered the birthday. I liked picking up the phone when people called. I liked getting back to them. I, it added so much to my life, especially as a working mom of young kids who didn't have a lot of social time. I started having trouble keeping up even in those social media groups. So I'm in this cancer support group and this mom's group that, that I've been a really active member of and, and have really offered a lot to and received a lot from. And it would get harder and harder to keep up with their posts. And eventually I just wouldn't log in as much. And, and so I lost those spaces and felt like sort of, you know, bad friend. And even though the people that I did communicate with were always reassuring me that no one was expecting me to show up differently, the truth is, is that as, you know, year two, year three, year four goes on and you struggle to be on social media, you struggle to find your phone, you have ADHD now, all these things meant additional interruptions in a social network that here in Vermont was very nascent to begin with, was not very developed. It's actually only been in the last... 18 months to two years, you know, since, since the 2021 health crisis, that my health and my circumstances have allowed me to have more space and energy and ability to re-engage. One of the first things I did was try to redevelop my ability to be a good friend. And, and it still has to look very different. You know, I had 39 years of living in the world as a totally reliable, high energy deeply socially engaged, most reliable person, most helpful person everyone ever knew. And I had friendships and family relationships and a, and a whole reputation in life, as well as a personality rooted in that and an identity. And then even at its best today, I have to be so judicious about what I do with my time, my boundaries, and how I engage with people. One of the biggest losses that is still to this day a challenge is that I am a deeply relational, social person who belongs out in the world in community with other people. 
but I also need a lot of alone time. I'm also sound sensitive. I also have ADHD, you know, working memory and attentional issues. If you text me and someone makes a noise or a kid asks a question, I might not get back to you. I think I did, I didn't, right? And then if you read that as, gosh, I'm blowing me off again, you don't extend an invitation and then we just don't become friends. So it requires constant forced visibility. New people meet me, I have to let them know if we're building a connection. Okay, FYI, I had cancer. Yeah, 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 no big deal, I have a brain injury. When I work with new people, I ask them, if you're ever waiting on something for me for any reason, don't be the hero, just ping me and see. I have really good systems and I have a high priority of value of being able to show up for other people. But the truth is I will never, ever, ever be as invested, present, reliable, and able to give and show up in the world socially as I used to. And I have to grieve that loss and figure out how to be me and make good relationships. And it's a hard thing. It's just really hard when it was so effortless for me for so long overarchingly in terms of what is consistently hard still. Having an identity and a personality built in one brain and one body and then having all of that brain body potential and way of living in the world change, but still being that highly relational person and having all those values and that identity is a constant sort of dance. It's a constant labor. And I don't know how to get it right, but I do think the most right that I get it is practicing acceptance of this changed way of being. You know, the one real gift of this is it has taught me a lot about what it's like for people for whom being connected isn't very easy, right? Introverts, people who get anxious, people who are worried about not knowing what to do or say, or who have a hard time in noisy environments. You know, there are a lot of people actually who have to work hard to make friends or to, to engage. And I just had never had to. And so now I, I have to work for it. And I think it gives me a lot of practice and, and a lot of compassion with seeing other people in the world who are having to work for it too. And, and that part is really valuable. Mm, that's really beautiful. So let's zoom out. Yep. Over the course of your whole state change story, what did you learn and what insights did you gain? The first and, frankly, most important lesson of this is that if you want to live a life of you know, vitality, health, and peace, and to not suffer in some way, the only path to that is one that starts informed by a good relationship with yourself. And what I mean by that is not like, you know, I take myself out to dinner or that I indulge myself. What I mean is I have to know myself. I have to be interested in who I am and spend time with myself. I have to know what I actually like to do versus what I thought I like to do with my time, right? And I have to know what I actually value versus maybe what I just sort of latently thought I valued. All kinds of trauma and painful experiences are very clarifying and they give you an insight into self and they teach you things about yourself you didn't know. But I think sometimes people lose sight of that when the wobble <laughs> stabilizes. You can lose that. And I did not. I think partially because my kids' well-being and my well-being and my survival depended on me not losing that thread. You know, the insight there, the first insight is the place that you start is with curiosity and an attentional focus 
on your actual self. Who am I? What is my version of a, of a life, right? What do I care more about this or that? Do I even like this thing I'm doing in the world? And some of us have the privilege to have some options and many people live without any choices to change things. I really did understand if I, if I build myself a life that, that depletes me and alienates me from everything and collapses me, I will get sick again. That is how science works, right? That's science. So, okay, I should build something I like more, less stressful. What is that? And I realized I didn't really know. What I needed to do was answer some harder questions about who I really was versus, you know, who I had been. And once you've done a little bit of that, you know where to go find it when you need it. And that's why COVID came. I was not confused about my priorities. I knew that it was in my values to stay in the new job and basically step up to the, that moment. And I knew it would cost my kids something and I knew it would cost my health something and I was still willing to do it just like a lot of other people were willing to step up and do hard things for some time. And it felt like a consent process, right? And that came from self. So did it work out well? No, I'm so stressed. <laughs> I ended up getting sick and you know it was a hard time. But it doesn't feel like I made a bad decision to stay working. I feel okay about things that came from self, whether they work out or not. And that is transformative. Life, in a very real way, is a one-ball pinball game, right? You get, like, the one life. You get the one go of it. Think of it as a video game. Think of it as a quest, whatever you want to think of it as. You do not have 10 extra lives. The truth is, is that when you face your own mortality a couple of times, you do not take any aspect of life for granted. And it makes you fearless and, and not recklessly fearless, but it makes you completely willing to assert, to ask for things, to try something, to take giant leaps when you want to have an experience or when it's the right thing. It makes you willing to say and do things that are a lot more honest. People don't live that way because they're afraid or they don't know or you know, well, what I'm doing already is kind of working. And I think at the end of this gig, whenever my life ends, whether it's tomorrow or in 50 years from now is almost irrelevant. When it ends, if I have a moment to reflect, I am not going to be sitting around thinking about if I had my wall that color or this color, or if I drove this car or that car, 100%. Where do I want to be? What kind of things do I want to experience? What do I want to put out or, or offer? Quite literally, what do I want to spend the minutes and hours of my time doing? And how long am I willing to spend the minutes and hours, weeks, months, years of my time doing things I already know I don't want to be doing? People who've survived cancer understand the assignment differently. And we are playing that game, you know, with vibrancy and aliveness. Because at the end of this, I want to feel like I left it all on the field. I want to, and, and, and I don't mean that by like effort even, although that's probably true too. I mean... I want to feel like every curiosity I had, if I had capacity to go dig into it, I did. I want to feel like everyone I loved, I got to spend lots of good time with. And if I want to go paddleboarding on a Wednesday afternoon because it's so beautiful out and my body needs to move, then I want to build work for myself where I can do that. And if I ever end up in circumstances where I cannot do that and I'm working multiple jobs again or I'm suffering again, I'll find my, my way to play my, my pinball in a different way. You know, my life can be smaller and I can still be playing from this mindset. And I look around and I just see a lot of people 
suffering, this sense that their life could or should be different. And I feel so much compassion for that. And at the same time, I want to say, no one else is going to play this game for you. Like you are the player. So if you want it to look and feel different, then like, let's go. Because nobody is coming to save you. Nobody is coming to play your cards for you. Nobody is coming to make your choices for you. And that mindset, that insight applied everywhere in my life has given me this just like amazing, beautiful life and not easy and not with all my problems worked out by far. It's more about how I occupy it. And it's something I see in other people who've had these really reconstituting experiences that put their own mortality and what the existential plight is in real, crisp, vivid clarity in front of them. We decide to like shoot the shot and then shoot the next shot and encourage other people. Shoot your shot. Do your thing. You want to do that? Cool. Do it. And, and people respond to that. I think what people see in me is a vitality and a willingness to, to sort of live on my own terms and in a self-sourced way. And it's not because I feel entitled. Self-sourced, not self-centered. Exactly. I don't feel entitled ever. I don't even relate to that. My job is to get this body over the finish line and to get this mind and this heart, this spirit, these children. This is the game I am playing. And I want to leave it all in the field the way I do that. Shauna Hill, and I am the co-founder and CEO of a mental health media and education company you probably haven't heard of in Burlington, Vermont, called State Change Media. And I'm here tonight, you know, it's interesting, I thought about a few different ways to do this. And first I had a strategy, and then I thought, I just want to say the true thing, so I'm going to say the true thing, which is that it's a really big deal that I'm standing up here because... I almost lost my life twice in the last five years. And deciding to co-found a media company when you've been a clinical social worker and a trauma psychotherapist for 21 years is sort of a bold move. And it only makes sense in the context of this story. So I'm going to share a little bit about it with you and how it connects to what we're aspiring to do at State Change, which is to turn mental health into public health for everybody by flinging the tools and science of mental health and resilience to the masses at scale as fast as possible outside of the medical mental health treatment system. <laughs> so this is a particularly uppity thing to do, I think. Um, I grew up here in uh, the Northeast Kingdom in Linden, Vermont. And I want to look back and be like, wow, look at all the swings I took. Look at all the shots I shot. Look at all these things I did. Whoa, that one didn't work out. Or wow, that one did. And in that mindset is an aliveness that gives you this confidence that, frankly, no matter what the weather, no matter what the wobble, once you're back to center, you'll come back to self and you'll come back to that mindset. I live with a peace now, like, well, whatever happens okay, like I definitely know I'll, I'll, future me will know how to figure that out and come back from that. I would never want to have to give that up now that I have it. When I needed it, when my life was on the line again and no one knew and the doctors didn't know and my kids were at risk, I was able to execute it in such a precise way and in such a, a clear, easy way. I'd figured out sort of the right approaches that I rocketed back to health. And I, and I actually feel like I've been in better health than maybe since before I had kids, ever since. The ultimate lesson, the health lesson in it, is that 
you know, there is a wider version of, as, as I like to say, of everyone's life available. And we now have some tools in science that, you know, if more healthcare providers and more people and more teachers and more parents and more, more folks could understand some of this stuff and apply it in their work, in their life, in their families, in their communities, that there's a lot that we can do with basic information, mindset, effort, right? And, and that there is a path forward of less suffering, less pain, more joy, more expansive life, more autonomy, more vitality. And as you know, this whole project really is, um, it's like a heart project for me, not just because it's fun to come on the radio <laughs> talk about mental health, but, but really I always say I have come back from the brink twice in less than six years and, and turned that into something that we can teach and, and, and train to children, right? And, and to doctors and to anybody. And it's exciting to know that I can take those experiences and transmute them into something else. It's just the path. The path is to take all of that, care for myself, and take the lessons of it and, and keep, you know, moving it into, into something more in, in a creative way. Because that's hopeful. And I know I don't get to live a normal lifespan or, or to have a mobile body if I can't keep myself authentically optimistic, right? And authentically hopeful. So that means creativity and that means, you know, coming at things that matter hard and that means letting everything else go. And, you know, I think that second health crisis, although I'm so devastated that that happened, was an opportunity for me to build a relationship with myself that, that now feels so rock solid because I now have no doubt that whatever comes, I'm capable of navigating it. And I did not believe that before, right? I was scared. I was scared before. I was afraid all the time. And now I'm fearless. <laughs> and the fearlessness comes, you know, from the having, having used those same tools and, and had so much success. Cool. Thank you. Is there anything else that you want to add? I think that's it. I did it. I that's it. You did it. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. I did it. Unscripted. Look at that. That's going to be As a child growing up in the remote mountains of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom region in the 1980s, there was little to do but be outside when the weather allowed and to read when it didn't. I was a voracious all-season reader, consuming fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and anything else I could get my hands on, and I could often be found reading a book up in a tree, sitting by a river or lake, or curled up somewhere quiet where I could disappear into worlds that were so much wider and more vibrant than my own felt. In the first few months after my tumor diagnosis, before there was a plan and before I had adjusted at all to my situation and new existential assignment, I was struggling to find something to tether myself to after my children went to bed at night 
and I was alone to sit in terror and attempt to occupy my mind until morning was something that wasn't going to tip me over the edge into further dissociation or collapse. I was desperate for something, anything, to put my attention on that could rescue me for even a few moments from the suffocating, scorching wildfire of traumatic stress that was reorganizing my brain and body in real time. Someone, probably a friend who knew me well, had sent me a copy of the pocket version of Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things, a book I had read in full a few years earlier as a fan of the Dear Sugar podcast, a surprise phenomenon and commercial sensation in which Strayed and co-host Steve Allman took letters from people with all manner of life problems and gave their best advice. The edition of this smaller, best-of book featured selected quotes and excerpts from Tiny Beautiful Things, elegantly centered on small, glossy pages that leave the reader no option but to take in the full force of Strayed's prowess as a thinker, writer, and human being. On one of those terror watch nights, I picked up that book, opened it to a random page, and found a quote so explosive in its honesty and application to my situation that I immediately took a picture of it and carried it around with me to repeat to myself and memorize as a mantra over and over again. You don't have a right to the cards you think you should have been dealt, she proclaims, certain of it. You have an obligation to play the hell out of the cards you're holding. This two-sentence phrase was the first thing to come into my brain since my diagnosis that felt true, and it functioned instantaneously like a spiritual and existential life preserver that she had tossed specifically directly to me in that moment. It was as though Cheryl Strayed herself was standing there in my bedroom saying, Look, I know what's happening is unacceptable, and I know you are about to go through fire, but you need to stand up. You need to find your footing and play the hell out of these abominable, unjust, terrible cards, because there is no other path. The truth of her words, that no one was coming to save me or the kids, and I was going to have to play, as she would and probably has said, the motherfucking shit out of these unacceptable cards if I wanted a vote in my own outcomes and future, was liberating for me. It was a directive, a prayer, a roadmap, and a toolkit all in one. And those 27 words were the medicine and plan I needed at that moment. For the next several months, I leaned on Strayed's words and on the words of other writers, poets, and thinkers, almost exclusively women writers of enormous power and insight who say fearless, correct things that I could add to my growing collection of words that I could use as conceptual and emotional tethers, buoys, compasses, and lanterns through what was coming. I passed my evenings with Bell Hooks, Pema Chodron, Audre Lorde, Sharon Salzberg, Adrian Rich, Barbara Kingsolver, Julia Alvarez, Toni Morrison, Joan Didion, Mary Oliver, and on and on letting these women and their best, most courageous thinking hold me until I could hold myself. Last week, with my anxiety and confusion about telling my story at fever pitch, pushing up against production deadlines and other pressing work, I turned again to Cheryl Strayed, pulling my copy of the full Tiny Beautiful Things off the bookshelf to find a new compass or lantern in her words. Within minutes, I found myself reading a response she wrote to a young, aspiring writer in the early days of her Dear Sugar Advice column, before it became a podcast or the book. The letter writer, in her 20s, was struggling with feelings of fear, resentment, and inadequacy about not having yet written something great. 
In an act of sheer compassion and revolutionary honesty, Cheryl told her in no uncertain terms that it was up to her to put herself and her voice out into the world, that no one was going to come and ask for her story, and that if she had what Strayed called, quote, a second beating heart inside of her that needed to come out, she had to do the thing. She had to tell us what she had to say. The lesson of this episode and of this entire podcast project for me has been that real vulnerability, something I evangelize heavily in my professional and personal life, sometimes takes more than courage, more than just willingness to say true things. It requires a willingness to deeply feel things that terrify us and to make friends with those unknown fears in order to heal them out of us and move forward. The truth is that life can at times be so impossible to process, adapt to, or bear fully in the moment that we quite literally reconfigure inside ourselves in an attempt to survive it. And that this can be true even when you have all the information and tools that help. Those of us who army crawl our way to the other side of complex compound trauma arrive there very changed, reconstituted in a brain and body that are evolutionarily designed to use the past to predict the future and have good reason to believe that the world is unsafe, unmanageable, and emotionally intolerable. Resilience through the process of healing requires us to be awake to our bodies, hearts, and minds, and that we move forward with greater accountability to truth and vulnerability than we've ever had to before. And it is a practice. It is not a task we complete and move beyond. It is a dance, even in the best case scenarios, and there is no going back to what came before. But there is healing, and there is joy, and there is vitality, expansiveness, and optimism if you persist in the cultivation and pursuit of it. There is a version of everyone's future that is wider, more vibrant, and aligned than their pain and fear allow us to see. And this version of things is more available to more people than ever before at any time in human history if we keep sharing our stories and our science instead of keeping both locked up in inaccessible places. When I got back from Los Angeles in 2021, I tattooed four Latin words and phrases on my wrists and ankles so that I would never, ever find myself again without a roadmap if I ended up at the bottom of the ocean. Truth. Love. Keep moving. Stay. If you are struggling at the bottom of the ocean, or burning alive, or numb, or untethered, or lost, you can borrow those words. Start at the beginning and find one true thing. Find a thing or a person you love and that makes you feel loved, even if it's a stranger or a feeling you have to find inside. When you get stuck, find your footing and keep moving. And when you want to run and hide away or disappear entirely, stay, 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 stay. And I promise you it will change because that's how it works.
coming this season on the Stay Change Podcast. In the first few weeks there, we were, we were losing soldiers left and right to roadside bombs and ambush attacks. This pain that I had in my jaw and my whole face just wasn't going to go away. I would wake up every day and it would hurt to eat breakfast. Then the thoughts begin to spiral. I didn't actually connect the dots that being cut off from the world was what was making my mental health suffer that much. I never did feel safe. I felt unsafe. Each episode features a deeply personal and powerful conversation I've had with people from all walks of life who faced extraordinary adversity, trauma, or mental health struggles. Struggles that brought them to their knees and tested their ability to keep moving forward. As your host, I talk with guests who've agreed to share these stories publicly, not just what happened or how hard it was, but how they faced these impossible moments and found their way through to the other side of things, to a better state. Seeing failure as a success, because really just as long as you're making any choice, it's the right choice. So although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thanked them for sharing and said, you've never met me yet. I believe that isolation actually makes almost any point of suffering more entrenched. And it's in our human connections, in telling our story, and in being in connection with ourself that we come out of the shadows of that shame and meaningfully start to feel different inside. At the developmental stage that you were all at, those losses have a much bigger impact. Your brains aren't yet full of ritual and roadmaps and meaning and memory. And they are looking to things to be a certain way as markers, as lighthouses to mark the way. Like, I know I'm doing the right things how to help people vision a path forward in fact-based ways and science-based ways, ways that have real elements that you can operationalize while also bringing connection, a sense of hopefulness and optimism, a sense of vision, because we need those things. Stay Change Podcast is a production of Stay Change Media and recorded at Dialed Studio in Burlington, Vermont, on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain. Our producer and sound engineer is Will Davis. Our story editor is Laura Rose Shepard. And I'm executive producer and host, Shauna Hill. Our show's theme music is by Phantoms, with additional music by Moments, Falls, Stephen Keach, and the Europa Proto-Harmonic Symphony Orchestra. Special thanks to our guests for their courageous vulnerability. And to John Toda, Wesley Davis, and the incredible team over at Syntax and Motion for helping us bring this podcast to life. The State Change Pod would not be possible without our amazing village. And special thanks go to Coley Hapeman, Jens Hybertson, Hannah Rosen, Ebba Lukender, Kai Gurley, and our friends at Middlebury College's Innovation Hub. If you or someone you know is struggling right now, you make sense, you matter, and you are not alone. Immediate support for mental health emergencies is available by dialing 988 from anywhere in the United States or contacting your local crisis support service or healthcare provider. To learn more about State Change Media and our mission to turn mental health into public health for all, 
or to bring more brain-based resilience to your workforce, organization, or community, check us out at statechangemedia.com or on our socials at state underscore change underscore media. We would love to hear from you.